Chapter Twenty Five, Part Five of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twenty Five, Reigns of Jovian and Valentinian, Division of the Empire, Part Five. Six years after the death of Constantine, the destructive inroads of the Scots and Picts required the presence of his youngest son, who reigned in the Western Empire. Constans visited his British dominions, but we may form some estimate of the importance of his achievements by the language of Panegyric, which celebrates only his triumph over the elements, or, in other words, the good fortune of a safe and easy passage from the port of Boulogne to the harbour of Sandwich. The calamities which the afflicted provincials continued to experience from foreign war and domestic tyranny were aggravated by the feeble and corrupt administration of the eunuchs of Constantinus, and the transient relief which they might obtain from the virtues of Julian was soon lost by the absence and death of their benefactor. The sums of gold and silver, which had been painfully collected or liberally transmitted for the payment of the troops, were intercepted by the avarice of the commanders. Discharges, or at least exemptions, from the military service were publicly sold. The distress of the soldiers, who were injuriously deprived of their legal and scanty subsistence, provoked them to frequent desertion. The nerves of discipline were relaxed, and the highways were infested with robbers. The oppression of the good and the impunity of the wicked equally contributed to diffuse through the island a spirit of discontent and revolt, and every ambitious subject, every desperate exile, might entertain a reasonable hope of subverting the weak and distracting the government of Britain. The hostile tribes of the north, who detested the pride and power of the king of the world, suspended their domestic feuds, and the barbarians of the land and sea, the Scots, the Picts, and the Saxons, spread themselves with rapid and irresistible fury from the wall of Antoninus to the shores of Kent. Every production of art and nature, every object of convenience and luxury, which they were incapable of creating by labor or procuring by trade, was accumulated in the rich and fruitful province of Britain. A philosopher may deplore the eternal discords of the human race, but he will confess that the desire of spoil is a more rational provocation than the vanity of conquest. From the age of Constantine to the Plantagenets, this rapacious spirit continued to instigate the poor and hardy Caledonians. But the same people, whose generous humanity seems to inspire the songs of Ossian, was disgraced by a savage ignorance of the virtues of peace and the laws of war. Their southern neighbors have felt, and perhaps exaggerated, the cruel depredations of the Scots and Picts, and a valiant tribe of Caledonia, the Atacoti, the enemies, and afterwards the soldiers of Valentinian, are accused by an eyewitness of delighting in the taste of human flesh when they hunted the woods for prey. It is said that they attacked the shepherd rather than his flock, and that they curiously selected the most delicate and brawny parts, both of males and females, which they prepared for their horrid repasts. If, in the neighborhood of the commercial and literary town of Glasgow, a race of cannibals has really existed, 
we may contemplate, in the period of the Scottish history, the opposite extremes of savage and civilized life. Such reflections tend to enlarge the circle of our ideas, and to encourage the pleasing hope that New Zealand may produce, in some future age, the hume of the southern hemisphere. Every messenger who escaped across the British Channel conveyed the most melancholy and alarming tidings to the ears of Valentinian, and the Emperor was soon informed that the two military commanders of the province had been surprised and cut off by the barbarians. Severus, Count of the Domestics, was hastily dispatched, and as suddenly recalled, by the court of Trevis. The representations of Jovius served only to indicate the greatness of the evil, and, after a long and serious consultation, the defense, or rather the recovery, of Britain was entrusted to the abilities of the brave Theodosius. The exploits of that general, the father of a line of emperors, have been celebrated with peculiar complacency by the writers of the age, but his real merit deserves their applause, and his nomination was received by the army and province as a sure presage of approaching victory. He seized the favorable moment of navigation, and securely landed the numerous and veteran bands of the Heruli and Batavians, the Jovians and the victors. In his march from Sandwich to London, Theodosius defeated several parties of the barbarians, released a multitude of captives, and, after distributing to his soldiers a small portion of the spoil, established the fame of disinterested justice by restitution of the remainder to the rightful proprietors. The citizens of London, who had almost despaired of their safety, threw open their gates, and as soon as Theodosius had obtained from the court of Trevor's the important aid of a military lieutenant and a civil governor, he executed, with wisdom and vigor, the laborious task of the deliverance of Britain. The vagrant soldiers were recalled to their standard, an edict of amnesty dispelled the public apprehensions, and his cheerful example alleviated the rigor of martial discipline. The scattered and dulcetory warfare of the barbarians, who infested the land and sea, deprived him of the glory of a signal victory. But the prudent spirit and consummate art of the Roman general were displayed in the operations of two campaigns which successively rescued every part of the province from the hands of a cruel and rapacious enemy. The splendor of the cities and the security of the fortifications were diligently restored by the paternal care of Theodosius, who, with a strong hand confined the trembling Caledonians to the northern angle of the island, and perpetuated, by the name and settlement of the new province of Valentina, the glories of the reign of Valentian. The voice of poetry and panegyric may add, perhaps with some degree of truth, that the unknown regions of Thule were stained with the blood of the Picts, that the oars of Theodosius dashed the waves of the Hyperborean ocean, and that the distant Orkneys were the scene of his naval victory over the Saxon pirates. He left the province with a fair as well as splendid reputation, and was immediately promoted to the rank of Master General of the Cavalry, by a prince who could applaud, without envy, the merit of his servants in the important station of the Upper Danube, the conqueror of Britain, checked and defeated the armies of the Almani, before he was chosen 
to suppress the revolt of Africa. 3. The prince who refuses to be the judge instructs the people to consider him as the accomplice of his ministers. The military command of Africa had been long exercised by Count Romanus, and his abilities were not inadequate to this station, but, as sordid interest was the sole motive of his conduct, he acted on most occasions as if he had been the enemy of the province, and the friend of the barbarians of the desert. The three flourishing cities of Oia, Leptis, and Sabrata, which, under the name of Tripoli, had long constituted a federal union, were obliged, for the first time, to shut their gates against a hostile invasion. Several of their most honorable citizens were surprised and massacred, the villages, and even the suburbs, were pillaged, and the vines and fruit-trees of that rich territory were extirpated. The malicious savages of Getulia, the unhappy provincials, implored the protection of Romanus, but they soon found that their military governor was not less cruel and rapacious than the barbarians, as they were incapable of furnishing the four thousand camels and the exorbitant present which he required before he would march to the assistance of Tripoli. His demand was equivalent to a refusal, and he might justly be accused as the author of the public calamity. In the annual assembly of the three cities they nominated two deputies to lay at the feet of Valentinian the customary offering of a gold victory, and to accompany this tribute of duty, rather than of gratitude, with their humble complaint that they were ruined by the enemy and betrayed by their governor. If the severity of Valtilian had been rightly directed, it would have fallen on the guilty head of Romanus. But the Count, long exercised in the art of corruption, had dispatched a swift and trusty messenger to secure the venial friendship of Romigius, master of the offices. The wisdom of the imperial council was deceived by artifice, and the honest indignation was cooled by delay. At length, when the repetition of complaint had been justified by the repetition of public misfortunes, the notary Palladius was sent from the court of Trevis to examine the state of Africa and the conduct of Romanus. The rigid impartiality of Palladius was easily disarmed. He was tempted to reserve for himself a part of the public treasure, which he brought with him for the payment of the troops, and from the moment that he was conscious of his own guilt, he could no longer refuse to attest the innocence and merit of the Count. The charge of the Tripolians was declared to be false and frivolous, and Palladius himself was sent back from Trevis to Africa with a special commission to discover and prosecute the authors of this imperious conspiracy against the representatives of the sovereign. His inquiries were managed with so much dexterity and success that he compelled the citizens of Leptis, who had sustained a recent siege of eight days, to contradict the truth of their own decrees and to censor the behavior of their own deputies. A bloody sentence was pronounced, without hesitation, by the rash and headstrong cruelty of Valentinian. The president of Tripoli, who had presumed to pity the distress of the province, was publicly executed at Utica. Four distinguished citizens were put to death, as the accomplices of the imaginary fraud, and the tongues of two others were cut out, by the express order of the emperor. Romanus, elated by impunity, and irritated by resistance, was still continued in the military command, till the Africans were provoked 
by his avarice, to join the rebellious standard of Firmus the Moor. His father, Nabal, was one of the richest and most powerful of the Moorish princes who acknowledged the supremacy of Rome. But as he left, either by his wives or concubines, a very numerous posterity, the wealthy inheritance was eagerly disputed, and Zama, one of his sons, was slain in a domestic quarrel by his brother Firmus. The implacable zeal with which Romanus prosecuted the legal revenge of this murder could be ascribed only to a motive of avarice, or personal hatred. But, on this occasion, his claims were just. The influence was weighty, and Firmus clearly understood that he must either present his neck to the executioner, or appeal from the sentence of the imperial consistory to his sword and to the people. He was received as the deliverer of his country, and, as soon as it appeared that Romanus was formidable only to a submissive province, the tyrant of Africa became the object of universal contempt. The ruin of Caesarea, which was plundered and burnt by the licentious barbarians, convinced the refractory cities of the danger of resistance. The power of Firmus was established, at least in the provinces of Mauritania and Numidia, and it seemed to be his only doubt whether he should assume the diadem of a Moorish king or the purple of a Roman emperor. But the imprudent and unhappy Africans soon discovered that, in this rash insurrection, they had not sufficiently consulted their own strength or the abilities of their leader, before he could procure any certain intelligence, that the Emperor of the West had fixed the choice of a general, or that a fleet of transports was collected at the mouth of the Rhone, he was suddenly informed that the great Theodosius, with a small band of veterans, had landed near Igilagus, or Giggory, on the African coast, and the timid usurper sunk under the ascent of virtue and military genius. Though Firmus possessed arms and treasures, his despair of victory immediately reduced him to the use of those arts which, in the same country, and in a similar situation, had formerly been practiced by the crafty Jurgurtha. He attempted to deceive, by an apparent submission, the vigilance of the Roman general, to seduce the fidelity of his troops, and to protract the duration of the war, by successively engaging the independent tribes of Africa to espouse his quarrel, or to protect his flight. Theodosius imitated the example, and obtained the success of his predecessor, Metellius, when Firmus, in the character of a supplicant, accused his own rashness, and humbly solicited the clemency of the emperor, the lieutenant of Valentinian received and dismissed him with a friendly embrace, but he diligently required the useful and substantial pledges of a sincere repentance, nor could he be persuaded by the assurances of peace to suspend for an instant the operations of an active war. A dark conspiracy was detected by the penetration of Theodosius, and he satisfied without much reluctance the public indignation which he secretly excited. Several of the guilty accomplices of Firmus were abandoned. According to ancient custom, the tumult of a military execution, many more, by the amputation of both their hands, continued to exhibit an instructive spectacle of horror. The hatred of the rebels was accompanied with fear, and the fear of the Roman soldiers was mingled with respectful admiration. 
amidst the boundless plains of Gertulia and the innumerable valleys of Mount Atlas, it was impossible to prevent the escape of Firmus, and if the usurper could have tried the patience of his antagonists, he would have secured his person in the depth of some remote solitude, and expected the hopes of a future revolution. He was subdued by the perseverance of Theodosius, who had formed an inflexible determination that the war should end only by the death of the tyrant, and that every nation of Africa, which presumed to support his cause, should be involved in his ruin. At the head of a small body of troops, which seldom exceeded three thousand five hundred men, the Roman general advanced, with a steady prudence, devoid of rashness or of fear, into the heart of a country where he was sometimes attacked by armies of twenty thousand Moors. The boldness of his charge dismayed the irregular barbarians. They were disconcerted by his seasonable and orderly retreats. They were continually baffled by the unknown resources of the military art, and they felt and confessed the just superiority which was assumed by the leader of a civilized nation. When Theodosius entered the exclusive domain of Igmazian, king of the Isaphelesis, the haughty savage required, in words of defiance, his name and the object of his expedition. I am, replied the stern and disdainful count, I am the general of Valentinian, the lord of the world, who has sent me hither to pursue and punish a desperate robber. Deliver him instantly into my hands, and be assured that if thou dost not obey the commands of my invincible sovereign, thou and the people over whom thou reignest shall be utterly extirpated. As soon as Igmazian was satisfied that his enemy had strength and resolution to execute the fatal menace, he consented to purchase a necessary peace by the sacrifice of a guilty fugitive. The guards that were placed to secure the person of Firmus deprived him of the hopes of escape, and the Moorish tyrant, after wine had extinguished the sense of danger, disappointed the insulting triumph of the Romans by strangling himself in the night. His dead body, the only present which Igmazian could offer to the conqueror, was carelessly thrown upon a camel, and Theodosius, leading back his victorious troops to Sitifi, was saluted by the warmest acclamations of joy and loyalty. Africa had been lost by the vices of Romanus. It was restored by the virtues of Theodosius. And our curiosity may be usefully directed to the inquiry of the respective treatment which the two generals received from the imperial court. The authority of Count Romanus had been suspended by the master-general of the cavalry, and he was committed to safe and honorable custody till the end of the war. His crimes were proved by the most authentic evidence, and the public expected with some impatience the decree of severe justice. But the partial and powerful favor of Melibotus encouraged him to challenge his legal judges, to obtain repeated delays for the purpose of procuring a crowd of friendly witnesses, and, finally, to cover his guilty conduct by the additional guilt of fraud and forgery. About the same time, the restorer of Britain and Africa, on a vague suspicion that his name and services were superior to the rank of a subject, was ignominiously beheaded at Carthage. Valentinian no longer reigned, and the death of Theodosius, as well as the impunity of Romanus, 
may justly be imputed to the arts of the ministers who abused the confidence and deceived the inexperienced youth of his sons. If the geographical accuracy of Amineus had been fortunately bestowed on the British exploits of Theodosius, we should have traced, with eager curiosity, the distinct and domestic footprints of his march. But the tedious enumeration of the unknown and uninteresting tribes of Africa may be reduced to the general remark, that they were all of the swarthy race of the Moors, that they inhabited the back settlements of the Mauritanian and Numidian province the country, as they have since been termed by the Arabs, of dates and of locusts, and that, as the Roman power declined in Africa, the boundary of civilized manners and cultivated land was insensibly contracted. Beyond the utmost limits of the Moors, the vast and inhospitable desert of the south extends above a thousand miles to the banks of the Niger. The ancients, who had a very faint and imperfect knowledge of the great peninsula of Africa, were sometimes tempted to believe that the torrid zone must ever remain destitute of inhabitants, and they sometimes amused their fancy by filling the vacant space with headless men, or rather monsters, with horned and cloven-footed satyrs, with fabulous centaurs, and with human pygmies, who waged a bold and doubtful warfare against the cranes. Carthage would have trembled at the strange intelligence that the countries on either side of the equator were filled with innumerable nations, who differed only in their color from the ordinary appearance of the human species, and the subjects of the Roman Empire might have anxiously expected that the swarms of barbarians which issued from the north would soon be encountered from the south by new swarms of barbarians, equally fierce and equally formidable. These gloomy terrors would indeed have been dispelled by a more intimate acquaintance with the character of their African enemies. The inaction of the Negroes does not seem to be the effect either of their virtue or of their pusillanimity. They indulged, like the rest of mankind, their passions and appetites, and the adjacent tribes were engaged in frequent acts of hostility. But their rude ignorance has never invented any effectual weapons of defense, or of destruction, they appear incapable of forming any extensive plans of government or conquest, and the obvious inferiority of their mental facilities has been discovered and abused by the nations of the temperate zone. Sixty thousand blacks are annually embarked from the coast of Guinea, never to return to their native country, but they are embarked in chains, and this constant emigration, which, in the space of two centuries, might have furnished armies to overrun the globe, accuses the guilt of Europe and the weakness of Africa. End of Part 5